Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. Thank you so much for tuning in. Folks, I am so excited about our guests that we have today on the podcast. First of all, I'm really excited because we're actually doing this in person, which is great. So for those of you who have listened to the podcast, I believe we're on episode oh, 09, uh, a lot of the podcasts we've actually had to do over Google Hangouts because it's obviously, you know, not feasible for me to fly across the country every time I have a guest. And so, but this one is in person and I cannot wait. Her name is Erin Katzner and she is just a phenomenal person. She has worked with birds. Birds of praise. I mean, just think eagles, owls, vultures, all different types of birds. And she's been working with birds for over 27 years. She has just an amazing experience. She worked at the National Avery. She even uh, worked alongside Jack Hanna. I cannot wait to talk to her about that. And now she is in charge of the community engagement at the World Center for Birds of Prey, of course, part of the Peregrine Fund. Erin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Corbin. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. So I just want to talk to you because you have one of the most fascinating careers of anyone I've ever met. And I'm not just trying to blow smoke. (laughs) I'm being serious. I'm being serious. And so tell me what sparked your interest, where you grew up, your childhood to work with birds. Yeah. Well, so I, I, first of all, I feel really lucky to have the job that I do and to have gotten to do all the things I have. I, I just feel like I've been in the right place at the right time a lot of times. So um, but I got started working with animals when I was 12. Okay. Uh, my mom signed me up to be a teenage volunteer at the Columbus Zoo in Ohio, okay. where I grew up. And um, I, it was uh, something to keep me busy in the summertime. Um, and who would have thought? But I became hooked. Oh. I fell in love with it. And uh, particularly one of the things that we were allowed to do as teenagers is help at the bird show. And we were allowed to help people find their seats and make sure they stayed seated and clean up the amphitheater afterwards. We didn't actually touch any of the birds because we were teenagers and you just don't Uh trust kids to do that kind of thing. Um, But I actually got lucky. I worked really hard and um, one of the uh, employees there, the supervisor of the bird show, uh, I guess he thought I had promise and so he let me start working with the birds. And... That was the beginning of the end for me. <laughs> my fate was sealed, and uh, I fell in love with birds. And um, what I particularly liked about them as a child, because I was really passionate about conservation and getting people excited about conservation. And you know, when you work with tigers or lions or bears, it's it's amazing. But you can't let the public get close to them because they'll eat. <laughs> you have so, a lawsuit on your hands exactly but with birds you can train them to be comfortable being near people and when you let people have close experiences with animals you can see an emotional change they, they start to care about that individual animal and once they care they're hooked and they want to do something to help protect the species in the wild so um, that's why I chose birds because I could let people get close to them so it was a pretty quick turnover, um, and um, yeah, it just hooked me forever. And then I was I was a volunteer for actually four years. Okay. Before I got hired at the zoo as a seasonal. Wait, employee. you actually worked there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh I worked there God. for okay. six years. Okay. Well, 
while I was finishing up high school and then uh, working on my degree, I, I have a bachelor's degree in wildlife management from the Ohio State University. <laughs> uh, I wanted to go to a school uh, close to home because I wanted to keep working at the zoo. So I um, worked as a seasonal in the education program. I did uh, day camp programs for kids, and then I also did interpretation, and then I also worked um, as a seasonal in the in the free flight bird show. Wow. And doing the animal shows there. So you're lucky. I now I know why you so said lucky. I know why you did that whole disclaimer. Like, listen, I've had a very <laughs> like blessed life at the right place at the right yeah. time. Because yeah. we've had guests on, you know, just just my podcast who are keepers, but they get placed in an area that they're not really fans of. It sounds right. like you were able to go right in with the birds and absolutely. I, I was truly lucky. And uh, one of the first things I did when I graduated from college, mm-hmm. uh, before I had a full time job, was I went to a conference of the International Association of Avian Trainers and Educators. That's a long... Okay, go ahead. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's kind of hard to believe that there are enough bird trainers in this world to have an entire association of them, but, right. but there are, and um, and that's where I got my first job. I, I had a couple job offers uh, after going to that conference and meeting people, and uh, my first official full-time paid job was working at the National Aviary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay. And um, I started out there as an assistant trainer and worked my way up to uh, an assistant director. So it was a pretty cool experience. I worked there for 10 years with all sorts of species, everything from penguins to raptors to songbirds. So Okay, and isn't isn't the National Aviary, isn't the only... What, accredited zoo just solely focused on birds? Is that it's, correct? It's one of two. Oh, one so of two. Okay. The Tracy Aviary. Oh, oh in, Utah. in Utah, which yeah. is great too. Okay, it's okay. It's a fantastic facility. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so they're the other aviary. It just so happened that our executive director said, hey, there's a national zoo and a national aquarium. Why not a national aviary? So he right? lobbied Congress and we got that title. Oh my and gosh. So that's, yeah, that's how we ended up the national aviary. Wow. And they specialize. Because I've actually, I've, I've never actually personally worked with the Avery, but I've been in contact with Rob yeah. and the PR lady. So right. we've talked about stuff, you know, working on stuff on the Today Show. So, you know, in the future, hopefully, fingers crossed. But they specialize in training a variety of different birds, right? Like, yes. So tell us, I mean, you're training everything from yeah. what? To... So when uh, when I first started there, we were a really small facility and um, open year-round, but on, like, a lot of winter days, we wouldn't have any guests mm-hmm. all day long, you know? And so... We, because we were a small facility and we were located in a park, we didn't really have room to expand much, but we decided that through training, we could expand visitor stay time by creating really neat interactive programming. And so we had uh, a number of free flight walkthrough aviaries there, and we actually trained a number of birds from each free flight aviary to come down and take food out of visitors' hands or to perform, you know, certain behaviors, natural behaviors uh, that would allow our trainers to talk about what these birds do in the wild. So we had um, pelicans that would let kids toss fish to them. (laughs) Uh, We had Inca terns that would come down and take fish out of your hand. Uh, Bee eaters that you could toss a cricket up to and they would catch it midair. Wow. Um, Yeah, so a whole bunch of different birds. And it was, it really worked. I mean, we went, went from being a facility where oftentimes there was nobody there all day to a facility where we were packed all day long. 
Wow. Yeah. And that's, that's a neat place to And be. that's something, like you said, like just working with the birds, that's something mm-hmm. a visitor will take home. Absolutely. Instead of just staring at, I mean, you know, nothing against seeing a lion or tiger in a zoo. It's great, but They're it's amazing. like, but to actually have that interactive experience, that's right. incredible. Right. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's been my career. That's what I've been really passionate about. Now, while I was at the aviary, I got the chance to expand a little bit into marketing and public relations. Okay. So I went back to school to get a master's in nonprofit administration. Okay. And so now that's what I do here. Can a lot you help too. me out? Yeah. <laughs> so you're so you're great. Can I contract you out to help me Absolutely. write a grant? That's great. Yeah. So I do a lot of that here now at the Peregrine Fund, and I love it. You know, I still get to play with the birds. I still get to do some training and work with the the bird show team um, and the department there. But um, but now I also get to take the education messages to a broader audience. So I think of marketing as just education. It's just an expansion of our education programs. Mm -hmm. And being at an international conservation organization like the Peregrine Fund is so neat. There's so many opportunities to tell these amazing stories of animals around the world, the communities of people who live and interact in the same space as them and how those communities are working to help save the species in their own backyards. Yeah, and, and can, can, can I, I say something? It. This is really, I think it's very special. Here, living in Boise, Idaho, yeah. we have potatoes, we don't have too much, but we are home, the headquarters of the Peregrine Fund. It's, and I have to say, one of the top most successful conservation organizations, initiatives in the whole entire world, and it's based here in Boise, and I think that's... Yeah. So just talk a little bit, because the Peregrine Fund, I mean, you guys saved peregrines from extinction i mean and right. other species so yeah so yeah just to put it into perspective i li- grew up in ohio but i've known about the peregrine fund since i was 12 and i've idolized this organization my whole life so when i was hired three years ago it was like the pinnacle for me the dream come true job mm. i i feel so lucky to get to work here now mm. um but yeah so the peregrine fund was founded in 1970 by Dr. Tom Cade. And it actually has a really cool founding story that I love to tell because it just shows that it doesn't matter how old you are or how, um, what your, what your uh, capabilities are, you can have a difference in this world. And the, our founding story happened when um, Tom Cade recognized this problem with peregrine falcons. And he and a group of people that were interested in protecting the falcons that included falconers and legislators and all sorts of people from around the country, scientists, got together and decided, we are not going to let the peregrine falcon go extinct on our watch. Uh, and it was close. That, that bird, we almost lost that species here in North America. Um, but this group of people got together and said, we're going to fix this problem. And uh, Boys Life magazine, the, the magazine of the Boy Scouts, did an interview with Dr. Cade, and a couple of boys read the magazine and said, we want to help Dr. Cade save the peregrines. So they went door to door in their neighborhood collecting change. And really? uh, were collected, I don't know, something like $23 or something, and sent it to Dr. Cade. And so Tom got the, this money and said, well, I need to open an, a bank account for it. So he went to the bank and wanted to deposit the money, and the banker said what's the name of the account? And he said, I don't know. Let's call it the Peregrine Fund. And that's really? how the organization started. $23? Yeah. Th- that's why it's called Two the Peregrine Fund? Two little boys. Fund. Two boys. Now, yeah. really quick for, for listeners, why were the Peregrines in trouble? And how were they able to, like, I mean, because I'm, 
I'm not a huge, I mean, I'm, I'm learning more about birds, yeah. as you saw, which you'll yeah. see later in the webisode, but that's another story. But how are you, how are they able to, uh, you know, what was going on with the peregrines and also how are they able to, you know, check that population? How are they, knew, you know, knew that it was going down? Right. So, so. Uh, falconers really around the United States and Canada recognized that peregrine falcons were in decline and they just weren't seeing them anymore. And uh, nobody really knew why at first until they started investigating. And they'd go up to the falcon iris, and all the eggs would be cracked and broken. And so they were able to, through some blood testing, determine that these falcons uh, were being affected negatively by DDT. DDT was a pesticide that was commonly used to get rid of mosquitoes. And uh, when an insect was sprayed with DDT, if a songbird ate it, and then that songbird was eaten by a peregrine falcon, the DDT would do what we call bioaccumulation through the trophic levels, all the way up to the peregrine. And it didn't kill peregrine falcons, but it caused their, the calcium in their bodies to not um, be prevalent enough to create strong eggshells. So when a female falcon would sit on her eggs to incubate them, the eggs would crack under her weight. So basically what was happening is no falcons were being born. And all of the older falcons, as they would age and die out, there was no replacement for them. So uh, it got to the point where peregrine falcons were actually extinct east of the Mississippi River in the late 60s really? and early 70s. Yeah. Oh, my God. And um, so this group of people got together. Some of them worked towards the legislation and were able to ban the use of DDT uh, through Congress and lobbying the government. And then a number of them, led by, by Dr. Cade, started breeding peregrine falcons in captivity for release back into the wild. Which today doesn't seem like a big deal, but at that time, nobody had ever done that before. So it was this really um, kind of moonshot to try and try and make this happen. And uh, so Dr. Cade and a group of falconers got together and they, they perfected breeding, captive breeding of falcons. And uh, they started introducing them back into the wild through a practice called hacking, which they developed. Um, basically, they put the birds in a box where the birds could see out. Um, but they were protected and they fed them for you know several weeks and then they'd open the door on the box the falcons could leave go back to the wild they'd keep putting food in the box so that if they were having trouble capturing food they could come back and still have a meal and then eventually over time the falcons became self-sufficient and uh, started reproducing in the wild and today Peregrine falcons are so common that you see them in almost every city across the United States, plus lots of natural areas. And so uh, they are no longer an endangered species. They came off the endangered species list in 1999. It was the greatest conservation success story of all time. Of all time. I'm yeah. going to insert applause. I'm going to do it. <laughs> it's so cool. It's so cool. And I feel like I can brag about it because I wasn't involved in that. I know. But I, <laughs> I just, just happen to get to work here now. That, I just think, I think that story, and now you, like, they're everywhere. Like, when they I go are. to New York, they're prevalent in New York, I and know. they're helping people out, you know, taking care of that pigeon population. They're, yeah. wow. Okay, yeah, that's, and I didn't know with the whole fund, $23. I and, know, isn't that amazing? And that's so, amazing. So, the Peregrine Fund, after we solved the Peregrine Falcon Project, uh, that, that issue, we went on to look at other endangered raptors and how we could take the lessons learned from the peregrine experience and apply them in other places. We went on to save the Mauritius kestrel, 
a okay. species where only four individuals was left on the four? entire planet. Yep. So, four. And where are they? Where yep. are they native? They're on the island of Mauritius, off the coast of Africa. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hello. Okay. Yeah. I was like, okay. Yeah. Wow. And so that species now there are hundreds of them living on the island. They're they're back to a decent population, and um, and so yeah. So we've had other success stories. We were able to prevent. Um, three species of Asian vultures from complete extinction. They were on the pro they were on the um, uh, headed in the direction of extinction. We figured out what was causing their problems. We were able to stop the use of it and uh, and now those species are starting to very slowly starting to recover. Uh, we're working to save California condors. Boise is actually the home to the largest breeding population of California condors in the world. One reason to visit Boise, folks. Yeah. It's so cool. And you yeah. can actually see them on exhibit. You don't see too many. I mean, I think this facility and then I know San the Safari Park in mm -hmm. San Diego. Is there yeah. any other ones in the U.S.? There are a few. So uh, okay. San Diego Zoo, L.A. Zoo, Oregon oh, okay. Zoo, okay. and the World Center all breed California condors. And you can see them there. And then also, I believe the Phoenix Zoo just opened a condor exhibit, which is great because one of the wild populations of condors is right in northern Arizona, and that's the population that the Peregrine Fund monitors. So we have a whole team of biologists there working with those birds. Yeah, and you, I mean, and just the, you guys are just so great with your conservation work. I had no idea. So recently, folks, and you're going to probably see this maybe prior or after we'll, we will release this, but we just filmed a webisode with Erin at the World Center for Birds of Prey. We had such a great time. She took us around, gave us a fantastic tour. But as you were showing us your beautiful condor exhibit, I had no idea. You said there were only 22 left in the wild. That's right. In in the 1980s, um, their population in the wild got down to 22 birds. And uh, everybody was rightfully worried. You know, we were about to lose this species. It's a species that has been on our continent since the Pleistocene. And uh, luckily, biologists said, not on our watch. This, is yep. not, this bird is not going extinct while we are here. And uh, so we, we, the biologists at that time, <laughs> brought them all into captivity and uh, with the hopes that they would breed. Now, was that very controversial? Did you have a lot of animal rights groups do, at the time? Were they saying, hey, don't take them out of the wild, let everyone be free? Right. So, so it was, okay, so it was It was, yeah, it was okay. controversial. And okay. it wasn't just the animal rights groups. It was, it was something that... You know, everybody was like, what's the right thing to do here? Yep. Do we bring them into captivity mm -hmm. and hope that they'll breed and risk that they might go extinct in captivity? Or do we let them die with dignity in the wild? <sighs> and so it was a real catch-22, and, and nobody was really sure. But fortunately, they did breed. And today there are about 450 birds mm -hmm. on the planet, uh, half of which are in captivity. The other half are out in the wild. Um, and so that has the potential to be a success story as long as we can get rid of the one thing that's continuing to kill them, which is lead. They are dying from lead poisoning okay. and uh, it's lead that is, uh, used, um, from ammunition. So when, um, you're out hunting or if you go dispatch an animal and you shoot the animal with a lead bullet, that lead bullet is designed to spread throughout the carcass of the animal. Okay. And we never really quite understood how much it spread, but little microscopic pieces are laced throughout the meat of the animals. So when you leave a gut pile in the field, or if you're just dispatching an animal, and you leave the whole animal out in the field, scavengers are eating that lead. And it's mm -hmm. not just 
California condors, but also bald and golden eagles and hawks and all sorts of different birds. And they're dying from lead poisoning, from ingesting that lead. Uh, Not to mention if you are feeding your family. I was just thinking. I mean, just... Yeah. You're eating lead. You're eating lead. That's you not, cannot yeah. get rid of all of it. It's okay. too microscopic. So what we're trying to do is work with the hunting community and teach them that if you want to hunt and you want to to continue the, the conservation ethic of hunters in our country, mm-hmm. you can switch to non-lead ammunition and be just as successful. Copper, you said? Copper ammunition. Okay. Yeah, now, non-lead. Is it, and I, I'm not a hunter, nothing against hunting at all. I'm just, no. that's just, yeah. I'm not a hunter, but is that more expensive? Is copper more expensive you know, than lead? It used to be. It used to be. Yeah. How, by by how price, much? Okay. Well, it used to be significantly expensive, okay. more expensive, but okay. the price of copper has come way down. And so it's just about the same now as the price of lead ammunition it's just a lot of people don't know i i hunt Mm -hmm. and i use copper ammunition Mm -hmm. and the ballistics on it are actually better than the ballistics on lead ammunition so it's a it's something that um i think if more hunters just knew about it they would Mm -hmm. happily switch so that's a really important message that we're trying to get out to the hunting community that you can have a positive impact on wildlife by switching because because mm-hmm. the condors need those meals they want, like it's good for them to have gut piles and mm-hmm. you know carrion mm-hmm. to feed on mm-hmm. uh, it just needs to be clean okay okay and are they so i mean just with lead and emission i mean are, are there way more products like i'm so yeah if so if i'm going to let's say sportsman's warehouse right and i am looking for ammunition i mean is, is copper hard to find is it it is, can be it can be it okay can be. so it is um, okay the most of the um, hunting sh- stores like Cabela's or Walmart or mm-hmm. Hunter mm-hmm. or Sportsman's, um, they have copper ammunition there, but sometimes mm-hmm. you have to ask because it's kind of hidden among the lead ammunition. Okay. And it's also good to ask because then it shows the stores there's demand for the copper ammunition. So every time I go to Cabela's to buy ammunition i always ask for it even though i know where it is on the shelf i still ask for it because i want to show that demand because the uh, ammunition makers have actually told us you know we are happy to make copper ammunition it's just all about the demand so if you can create the demand we will produce more copper or more non-lead and if you're looking for something that's maybe um, a strange caliber there is a website called huntingwithnonlead.org uh-huh. that uh, has a list of places where you can get different calibers that you might be looking for. So okay. they even make copper 22 ammunition now. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. That's great. I mean, progress. I mean, it's, you it know, is. Yeah. it's slow, but at least it's progress. It's and... going to happen. I think in our lifetime, um, the lead issue will be taken care of. And at that mm-hmm. time, the Condor project will be considered successful. Wow. I would yeah. die to see one out in the wild. And can, Okay. Can I ask you? Okay. Yeah. Just... I'm going to tell you my story, and mm-hmm. can you tell me if I saw a California condor or not? Okay, okay. like just I, tell me the <laughs> tell me the probability. Okay. So I was in like very oh my oh my goodness where was I like at the bottom of Utah, mm-hmm. kind of in the kind of past the St. George area, mm-hmm. almost on the Arizona you know border border. border. Yeah. And I looked up in the sky as I was driving, and I swore I thought I saw a condor. What are the the what what was that probability did i just see no it's possible it is because i i literally saw it and i actually i messaged uh, dr munir varani which yeah. we'll, we'll talk about um soon in this podcast but uh-huh. i was like i think i just saw a condor and i 
Yes, I didn't know. But what is the probability, though? There's only like 400 in the wild, so come no, on, Corbin. This was in 2012, so I don't know. 2012. It's, yeah. it's possible. It's possible, but um, is that like seen There it, are know? condors in that region. There's okay. not a lot of condors in that region yet. Okay. We haven't released condors in Utah. They've, they've moved there from the Grand Canyon region where okay. we do releases at Vermilion Cliffs okay. National Monument. Mm-hmm. And those birds, I mean, they're wild birds, so they can go anywhere they want, and they don't know the state boundaries, so... We've had a pair of condors breeding in Zion National Park. Zion. Okay, yeah. I was close to Zion. Yeah, okay, so it's very possible. Very possible, but it's yeah. still, okay, next time I'll make sure I have my camera with me. Yeah. Because it sounds like an outlandish, yeah, I saw a unicorn the other oh, day, no. and it's like, yeah, It's what? not that crazy anymore. If, you, if okay. you're in the right spots, uh, if you go to the Grand Canyon, you have a very good likelihood of seeing a condor. If you go to certain areas in California, your likelihood is high that you can see a condor. Awesome, awesome. It's so cool. And once again, on your conservation work, so a lot of people don't know this, um, so I've been able to go to Africa a few times, and it was because of the Peregrine Fund's conservation program there. But Dr. Munir Varani, the Africa Programs Director, I think he's since been, what is his title now? He's it's like a vice president. He's now. the vice president? Yeah, yeah he's oh one of our vice presidents. Gosh, okay, so vice president, Dr. Yep. Munir Varani, a great friend of mine. and But uh, his Africa, I went through Boise State University the first time to go to Africa to learn about East African vulture conservation. And I had no idea there was such a such a horrible crisis going on right now in Africa. Yeah. Can you tell the listeners what's going on? Because I had no idea until I signed up for the program. Right. So uh, one of the big things that is happening right now um, is the use of poison is unintentionally and intentionally killing vultures and at an alarming rate in the last uh 20, 40 years, we've seen declines of, in some cases, up to 97%. 97? Oh my god. For some species, yeah. So, there, uh, we are seriously concerned. We are alarmed. Uh, It is a crisis. And it's something that we have focused a lot of energy on at this point in time as an organization because somebody needs to do something quickly. Fortunately, there are a lot of nonprofits. Uh, conservation organizations throughout the continent of Africa that are working together on this problem. We have Kenya, uh, that's our area where our field researchers are working and we are partnering with other organizations in other countries to develop programs that will prevent and stop poisoning. And what's happening is some of the poisoning is intentional because poachers, when they kill an animal, don't want vultures circling overhead because it lets the the park rangers know where the kill is and they'll Mm. go check it out and they can catch the poachers that way so poachers intentionally uh, lace carcasses of animals with poison to kill vultures other people unintentionally kill vultures using poisoning so when a um uh, uh, somebody who is um, taking care of their cattle when one of their cows is killed by a lion or a hyena they will, in retaliation, spread poison on the carcass of that of their cow. Yeah, because I mean, for for these Maasai, that's their livelihood. Absolutely, that's how you're judged in your Absolutely. community. This is yeah. So just yeah. out of yeah, they don't have money in the bank. They have cows that yes. are are their savings. There that are their economy, and so uh, when they lace one of these cows with poison, it's it's not just killing the lion or hyena that killed the cow but it's also killing 40, 50, 60 vultures at a time because vultures are communal feeders. 
And so it's turned into quite the crisis. Furidan? So, they, is it Furidan? So, some of it, it started out as Furidan. Furidan, sorry. Furidan, uh, that particular brand name is not, uh, they've, they've stopped selling it so that it can't be used, but there are other poisons like Furidan that people have switched to. Isn't it cheap? Over it's the cheap, cheap over yeah. the counter, you can yeah. get it in app. Okay, it's a pesticide, basically. It's a pesticide, and Munir, or excuse me, Doctor Varani told me that it's so strong it even kills the flies. It does. Odorless, like I can't even. It kills everything, and including people's dogs. Some oh, okay. of them aside, dogs. Um, mm. It can get into the water and kill people. Oh, and so that's God. something that we are working on. Uh, we we've started training the wildlife officials in the national parks to identify a poisoning scene, clean it up, protect it, collect evidence, because it is something that can be prosecuted. Somebody can be prosecuted for killing wildlife by using poisoning now. Oh, okay. That's something that's fairly new. Um, so we've been working with teams of um, wildlife officers to train them to do that. Uh, we call it our rapid response teams. And they, that is working really well. It's, it's actually... Um, being very, uh, it's been um, quite uh, successful, even though we just started it a few months ago uh, or about a year ago. And um, so, for example, we just had a poisoning incident where um, somebody called in to one of the wildlife officials and said, we found this carcass, it's been poisoned, or dead vultures. The officials came, cleaned up the carcass, and prevented any future poisoning from that carcass. Because if the carcass isn't cleaned up, it just continues to kill more and mm -hmm. more wildlife. Oh and, uh, and so that was uh, considered a success because it, it stopped that carcass from causing more damage. Mm -hmm. um, in the future, we hope the education programs that we're doing with the Maasai community and other communities that uh, are ranching um, will help to uh, prevent more, po just stop poisoning altogether um, because we're working with communities to build better fencing for their livestock. Bomas? Bomas, Bomas, yeah. okay. Building better bomas with their, for their livestock to prevent them from being killed by lions and hyenas mm -hmm. in the first place. Um, but we're also working with people to understand that poisoning doesn't just affect those animals. It can also hurt you and you, the people around you. And so mm -hmm. that seems to be resonating, and uh, I have, I have a, I have a lot of hope. Even though we've got a long way to go in in um, solving this issue, I, I do have a lot of hope that that we're gonna get there because so many people are working. That's great, and it's seriously all about education. But how is that? affecting them because that's something yeah. i didn't i didn't understand in my young career because i just would get right. so frustrated even when i went back to africa like why are they doing this because i yeah. mean just killing these magnificent animals and mm -hmm. uh, but it is i mean i think i think it will be successful if you say listen this is you know affecting you it can you know this can affect your family but Absolutely. also ecotourism because if we didn't have vultures the right. maasai mara the serengeti would be a complete dump correct yeah. like there would be carcasses everywhere mm -hmm. it would be the 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 stench alone would completely no one would ever want to visit so Absolutely. i mean it could really affect ecotourism it could yeah and okay. uh you know i can't imagine vultures or africa without vultures no you know i don't want to imagine africa without no. vultures so this is a really important project and one that you know we don't have any other option we have to solve this problem yes and there's a great ted talk 
If yes. You're, yes, Dr. Varani did a TED Talk, and he, gosh, he did such a good job. Yes. Such a great TED yep. Talk. You can yeah. check that out. And we also, have you seen, I went down, I filmed a little documentary with him through the eyes of a vulture. Have you seen oh, it? Oh, I haven't seen that. You haven't? I see that. I was so young. It was before I grew this giant <laughs> beard. I don't, I don't even have a beard before I could grow that. No, I went down there, and he let me, I got to help oh, ca- capture cool. vultures, and yeah. it was so crazy. Anyway, so doing great work there. Okay. So... What a career you have had. I just want to backtrack a little bit. Are you ready? I am. Okay. What was it like meeting my idol as a kid was Jack Hanna. Oh, you got to yeah. meet Jack, right? He's amazing. Yeah. So how long? Okay. Now, but did you just like, did you get to meet him or did you just like, like see him far away and like, you no. know, something? Okay. okay so I actually, I worked with Jack on a few very specific projects Okay. We, at the okay. zoo when I was a teenage volunteer we were just starting a capital campaign to expand our facilities and uh being like the star teenage volunteer they thought i would be a good person to parade in front of the donors and jack was at this breakfast and i was giving a tour of our new aquarium to these donors uh, along with jack and uh, i remember one of the funniest things that ever happened was um, there were peacocks kind of like attacking the breakfast buffet uh-huh. before the donors arrived. And I was trying to show him away and Jack was like, no, no, you got to do it like this. And he starts like jumping up and down and flapping his arms and squawking. And sure enough, it scared the peacocks away. But I was like, really? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a nut, but he's like such a fun person. Oh, good. Such a good spokesperson for animals, wildlife conservation. Dear God. He has done so many good things and, so many so yeah i've met him but i also very much idolize him as well i do i remember i would wait for the zoo life vhs tapes yeah. when i was a kid and i remember they come out like i don't know every few weeks and i still have them i'm going to show them to my kids oh, and so cool he's I, what a great voice for animals and yeah. someone i aspire to and jack's still in the game he jack is. is he's going strong he's he's doing great good he's for jack fantastic. he's yeah. great that's awesome did yeah. you get to work with Susie too and all the team yeah i love Susie. i've met Susie. Susie and Brian and Brian. Yeah. I never worked with them directly, but, oh, you but okay. I've definitely met them. And yeah, when we were uh, working at the Columbus zoo, one of the like treats was getting to go up to their department because they had all the animals. You could like the, the baby tigers, the stuff and, that you'd yeah, see on Letterman that, that Jack touch. would. Yeah. yeah. So it was even a treat for us yeah. as employees to get to see those animals. Gosh, I can, I brag just once, please. Absolutely. So my fiance and I, Samantha, Hi, baby. We got to uh, they we, we got to work with Susie and Brian. Um, I teamed up with the AZA, but they brought yeah. baby clouded leopards. Uh, I was dying. Like yeah. I was like, "Are you kidding me?" I just Such you know, cool and I'm a starstruck seeing Susie. Like because yeah. I've seen like I mean, if you watch. Like I said, I'm such a nerd, but such a big Jack Hanna fan. You watch his segments on Letterman or this oh, and that, yeah. you'll know that he's very particular about his handlers, and you'll see Susie, and anyway, mm-hmm. it's really cool. So yeah, that's cool. cool. That's cool. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. And then uh, backtrack a little bit more, I guess, past the, the uh, Columbus Zoo. You're looking at me like, wait, what are you going to say? <laughs> you were the face, the spokesman of the National Aviary? I was, yeah. I was okay. the spokesperson for about 10 years 10 of years. the National Aviary. And, and so it was really fun. I got to it. do some some neat, uh, mostly local, local. Um, television, radio, that sort of thing. But I also uh, got to go. Be, I was on Animal Planet. You were on, wait, wait. penguins. You were on Animal Planet. Yeah, it was what? Really cool. I was on. You were like. Wow. Pet Star, actually. You were a Pet Star <laughs> with Mario Lopez? Yeah. yeah. Which was like a, 
No way. So I grew Can up. We... <laughs> when I was in middle school, Saved by the Bell was super popular. Right? And I had the biggest crush on Mario Lopez. And he, on Pet Star, he actually put his arm around me at one point. And I was like, <gasps> like I was melting. I was yeah. melting. It was Wait. the coolest thing ever. Talk about that. So you're on Pet yeah. Star. Where did they film that? Was it in Los Angeles? It was in LA. We had, I, the Penguin and I flew first class no. across the country. Yeah. No way. It was really funny because the airline called me and they're like, do we need to get special water from Africa? <laughs> I was like, no, you'll be fine. <laughs> class with yeah. the penguin how does that work so i've never flown with the animal does is he sitting right next to you in the first class he was and because oh basically because I open told, bar well, <laughs> basically what happened was i told animal planet like i'm not letting you put the penguin in the belly of the plane no. so uh he's good you're gonna have to figure that out and they did and they let me fly first class with my penguin and uh we got to go up in the cockpit and meet the pilots oh my gosh and uh and then the flight <laughs> attendants gave him his wings and a first no way yeah it was oh so my funny God. it was I, so funny i bet they still talk about that probably yeah it was i mean i still talk about it so yeah okay so i'm just curious i'm so okay so is, is he in a in a carrier or do you take him out during the flight or how did yeah he stayed in his carrier the entire flight right they next let to me, in the seat. yeah they let me board the plane way in advance oh, because, that's good. and that that's like when I met the cock, went oh up to the God. cockpit and met the pilots. And, okay. Um, and so, and but then once we were on the flight, he stayed in his. I would have just it's, soaked it's that just up. It's just like a dog kennel. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. I would have soaked that up. Like, it excuse really me, fun. folks. Yeah, excuse me. I have a yeah. penguin. Actually, maybe I would have done that because then people would have been like, you know, did did people know in first class you had a penguin? Yeah. Did they smell it? Everybody knew because, like, I guess the buzz had like gotten. <laughs> and, and when I went through TSA for the for the check for the safety check, um. I had to take the penguin out of his kennel and oh, walk really? through the metal detector with him because I didn't want him running through the oh the x-ray machine, but they wanted to x-ray his kennel. So um, so I'm walking through, and like all everybody's like, what do you have? Like all the TSA <laughs> staff wanted to get him. And... You could have totally snuck. Anyway, yeah, I don't want to get in there yet. No it one's going to. <laughs> wow. What was, what was the penguin's name? Uh, Patrick. <laughs> I love it, Patrick. And he was an African penguin, mm-hmm. I'm assuming, because the African water comment. Okay. Right, right. Okay. And so you go to Los Angeles and you go to Pet Star? Yeah, we were on Pet Star. <laughs> did and you win? No, we didn't. How did you not win? Well, I think, well, I'm not really sure, but, <laughs> but, but uh, it was, um, it was an experience. It, I, um, yeah, I didn't really want to do it at first because penguins are not pets. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I want to make very clear is that wild animals do not make good pets. Mm-hmm. It takes special um, understanding of what the animals need to provide for them correctly. And so I, I made Animal Planet like promise that I could talk about penguins are not pets. I have, on to, the show. I have to see this clip. I have to have the clip. I don't have it with me, but I think it's on YouTube. Like, no. you can probably see it. Oh yeah. Oh my god, were you okay? And were you because you're very comfortable in in front of the camera? Were you nervous at all? Of course. You yeah. were. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Mario Lopez has an arm around was me. Fun. <laughs> I was freaking out. That's so funny. No, I mean, was but, Mario nice? Oh, he was super nice. Oh, good. Yeah, but they did tell us ahead of time. They're like, don't say anything about Saved by the Bell. Like, we weren't allowed. He does. He does We weren't allowed to mention the word bell at all. Oh my god, it's <laughs> like so. One funny. of the other contestants had a pig and the pig was going to ring a bell and they're oh. like no 
it's not allowed really? to do that. Yeah, so they, like, scrap that behavior that the pig was going to do. You know so. what they did with me? They hid me in a room so I wouldn't run, run into uh, Martha Stewart when I was on her show. Oh, really? They hid me. Martha's coming! Hide him, hide! You know what I mean? <laughs> hide him! Corbin, get down! <laughs> I swear to God, they hid me that away. That is so funny. Isn't that funny? Really Don't funny. talk to Martha. Yeah. If she talks to you, like, <laughs> she's so, so funny out. It's like, okay, like, what yeah. a... That's interesting. Okay, yeah. so you got to meet Mario. I... That's so funny. Okay. Yeah, it was fun. It was a fun uh, time in my life. Do you have any pictures from that experience? I do, yeah. Okay. I have pictures of... Um, of me and the penguin on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. <laughs> and we we couldn't, we wanted to get his picture with uh, Danny DeVito's star okay. as the penguin from Batman. Yes, right? yes. But we couldn't find it anywhere. So oh, okay. we ended up taking a picture with Kermit the Frog's star. <laughs> why? Like, why? We're Just... like, this is a good second best. But it was funny because, you know, in Hollywood, people must see weird things all the time uh-huh. because we're walking down the street with a penguin and nobody's like, thinking that's weird <laughs> <laughs> i see the same stuff well we're walking stuff into yeah. new york from we're doing the uh the uh today show we'll be in the entrance and we'll walk by we've walked by with a deer before oh on a gosh. leash uh, you know big macaws yeah. i mean just and you'll people just go on the street just or you know listen to their, you know they don't even doesn't even phase them people are like whatever that's <laughs> so funny it's so, so funny. funny i would be like what yeah that is incredible yeah. okay and so you did that. You were the spokesman there. What a, what a great experience. It was fun. Awesome yeah, experience. It was really fun. And you also, did you say you worked with Steve Martin as well? Yeah, Steve Martin, the bird trainer. Oh, yeah, Steve <laughs> as we're talking about, yeah. As we're talking about Hollywood. Okay, so, yeah, Steve yeah. Martin, the bird trainer. But in, in in our animal world, isn't he's a famous guy. He's incredibly famous. He's Do you think he'd much... do the podcast? Yeah, I think he probably would. I don't know. I think so. You yeah. might have to write a letter of I recommendation. Could, I could ask him. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Steve, uh, Steve has been my training mentor okay. um, since I graduated from college, basically. He um, is absolutely phenomenal. He um, owns the company Natural Encounters mm. that does the bird show at Disney's Animal Kingdom. And he has also done other shows around the country, and he consults. Uh, he's a tra- training behavior consultant around the world. He, mm-hmm. he travels everywhere to consult. And he actually founded the, the organization I talked about, the International Association of Avian Trainers and Educators. He founded that organization wow. along with a group of uh, other people. But um, And uh, just last year, I became president of the organization. You're the president? Yeah. They, for, nice to meet you, Mr. Yeah, president. You're, 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 <laughs> yeah, so for... Um, I, basically, I have another year in office, and then I'll rotate off, and somebody else will. Come wow! In. But yeah, so it's kind of it's kind of a full circle thing for me when I um, was elected to be president, and Steve nominated me. No, so that was really. Can I ask touching. a question? Yeah. How many people? voted on this because really quick I was elected the Idaho Herpetological Society president uh-huh. for one year but I think I was the only one <laughs> I was the only one running and I was yeah. the only one voting so yeah. so it was a sizable group who elected you president yeah we have about 500 members worldwide Jeez. and I don't okay. know how many of them actually voted okay. <laughs> that's good I was gonna say it's an honor yeah I okay. felt honored it's a small okay. organization and a small world but for me it felt really special it is a very very small world and i have to thank you on air right now on this podcast because you've helped me out you introduced me to fung lu who and i call him one of the world's best bird trainers he is is. so um he's helped me on the today show and fung has he's actually helped uh several times he's helped me out but his birds and the behaviors he has taught them 
it's something that the show has never seen before and just right. incredible. And so I thank you for that because that oh, was a great pleasure. fun. Now he's a, oh, I would say he's a good friend and, you yeah. know, his birds were great. But um, it's definitely a small world. Do you have any advice for anybody wanting to get into the bird training field? If, if I'm listening and I'm, and I'm young or maybe even older, yeah. what is your advice? How would I pursue this career? My advice is absolutely to get as much experience possible as, as quickly as you can. You know, uh, don't hesitate. I, when I was volunteering at the Columbus Zoo, I also volunteered for the Ohio Division of Wildlife. I volunteered at a veterinary hospital. I, I got as much experience as I could so that I could figure out exactly what I wanted to do with animals, but also that all looked really good on a resume then. Because in the bird training world, just like with a lot of jobs, it's not how much you know as much as it is who you know, because you need to get your foot in the door somewhere. So volunteering and interning is really important. And there are lots of internship opportunities in the bird show world. Um, so if, if bird training is something you're really interested in, that is, um, a way to get your foot in the door. AZA's website, they have, um, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums website has job postings on it a lot, including internship postings. So you can, you can look for an internship opportunity there. Also the International Association of Avian Trainers. <laughs> Which Aaron is a president. <laughs> we have a website where you can, you can, um, uh, find out about job postings as well. And we have a conference. And uh, like I said, I got my first job at the conference and a lot of connections. are. Where is it? Way. So is a conference held, I'm assuming somewhere different every year. It is. Yeah. So where this, is it year, this year it's, it's typically in February and this okay. year it's in Redding, California. Okay. It's being hosted by Turtle Bay, um, Adventure Park, which is uh, a, a zoo facility, an AZA accredited okay. facility. And um, and so that's where it's being held this year. We haven't figured out yet where the next one is. Um, that's usually announced in February at the meeting. So okay. we'll, we'll vote on that during the board meeting. Okay, so. good. Try Kenya. Do it, do it. That would be amazing. <laughs> right? That if would it, be everyone amazing. can afford to do yeah. it. Okay. So this is kind of an off-the-wall question, but I'm going to okay. – are you ready for it? I am. What was the most difficult bird to train? Oh. I mean, they all have – Pros and cons. One of the one of the most difficult training assignments I was ever given that did not actually work out at all <laughs> was <laughs> training a golden pheasant. And a pheasant. You, yeah. Okay. So if you think about it, pheasants, their first instinct anytime anything new happens is to flush. That's what they do in the wild, and mm. that's how they stay alive in the wild. And so um, I was assigned this training. Uh, task to train the golden pheasant to walk across the stage for uh, a gala anniversary and I took one look at it and was like that's impossible <laughs> like, it's just not gonna work <laughs> because of its natural behavior it's, it's natural history and so that's one thing to keep in mind when you're training animals is what does this bird do in the wild because that's going to okay going to give you in, insight into what you're going to be able to train the bird to do in uh, in a captive situation and, and what you can train it to safely do and, um, and, and what might motivate it, what it'll find being reinforcing that sort of thing. So, okay. Yeah. So that was the most impossible training. Impossible and didn't work out. Yeah. What was the easiest, uh, training that you've ever done that actually maybe surprised you regarding Species wise, yeah. So I've trained a couple of eagles that surprised me. Um, one in particular that I'm thinking of um, was just way smarter 
than I expected. It was actually a harpy eagle. Okay. And it was much smarter than I expected it to be. I guess maybe because it's so confident, because if you think about it, like it's natural history, it's the top of the food chain where it lives. It has nothing to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. And so this bird, because it had nothing to be afraid of and was so confident, um, didn't hesitate to step up to my glove for the first time and come out and work with me, even though it was an older bird that had never had any experience um, that was necessarily positive with humans. It had never been hand-fed before. It never had that close of interaction with people. This bird was just amazing. And it really surprised me because it's a big, intimidating bird. And it scared me a little bit to start working with him. But um, i got to be honest, he's a big puppy dog. <laughs> <laughs> and if you see the talent, I mean, just the yeah. talons of a harpy eagle. These are the birds that take slavs and monkeys. Right. And from the trees they're, they're powerful just, yeah just powerful yeah have you sustained any injuries and i just sustained yeah. one with my thumb i just got yeah. bit by wally the eagle <laughs> so which is fine completely healed yeah it's so funny yeah so you know anytime you work with the animals you run the risk of injury um being bit or with birds of prey the big one to worry about is their talons um can do a lot of damage and and I'm embarrassed to say that, yes, I have been bitten and footed before. And the reason I'm embarrassed by that is because every time I get injured, it's because I did something wrong mm -hmm. and I didn't read the, the animal's behavior yep. correctly. And so it's really like every time I get bit, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of um, putting me in my place and, and reminding me that, you know, I need to be paying better attention 100% like my thumb should not have been next to that piece of rat like my thumb <laughs> right. looked like a rat and it was covered in hair like Wally yeah. didn't know and that was probably me <laughs> setting you up Sorry about that. it's fine it's fine it was great you can check out the webisode yeah, yeah I feel like that too because I've been bit by almost everything I've ever really mm -hmm. worked with it's, I think it just comes with the nature of the job but right. every time it's always been my air I mean yeah. I've been attacked by large Burmese pythons before but it's mm -hmm. like hey my hand <laughs> was in the enclosure I smelled like a rat like right. you can't exactly yeah Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And animals always give you warning, especially mm -hmm. birds give you warning before they're going to do something. So if you don't read that warning and back off, then there's a high likelihood you're going to get injured. And so um, that's why being able to be sensitive to behavior is such an important trait of any animal trainer, I think. Um, I, I'm lucky that I work with animals that are unlikely to kill me. You know, like right? if I train elephants or big cats or something, <clears throat> I think I would probably be dead by now. Yeah. I, I, I make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, birds yeah. birds are definitely a safe matter. So I've trained one bird. You want to hear what it is? Yes. My pet emu Napoleon, which ah. you had no idea. It took me three and a half years to train him. Yeah, well. So I, Aaron, I built, and I was so excited. So we have property along the Snake River in Idaho, uh -huh. and uh, through our property runs a creek over the two and a half acres. So Napoleon's exhibit was on one side of the creek, and emus are so inquisitive, and they're yeah. nosy and so i i wanted to build him a bridge over the creek an oh. emu bridge and build a separate little habitat um on the other side of the property and so i built i'm sure probably the first ever emu bridge you have to come check it out at my yeah, house i want to see this emu bridge it's so cool like yeah. right and so i envision like i mean i was working i built this bridge over the creek and i envisioned like once i opened it up that napoleon would just run across it over the creek terrified yeah would not even three and a half years wow three and a half years 
I find they're not the most intelligent animals, but no, no they're, they're not. not. Yeah. They're not. <laughs> anyway. I, I know a few, uh, a few of my colleagues that work in other uh, bird shows uh-huh. uh, around the country. One of them, in particular, is at the Cincinnati Zoo. He says, you know, he's been able to train his emu to run across stage. Okay, that's and about it. That's it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was gonna so, say, do I need any pointers? Like, I don't know. No, I mean, I think it's actually pretty impressive that you stuck with it for that long and yeah. finally got him to. So, does he go back and forth on his own now? Now, but now really this good. is well, this is really bad the bridge looked hideous for a couple years so basically because we we have like a five foot fence obviously on either side so Mm -hmm. he's not gonna you know to he's not gonna you know go into the creek but uh he was terrified he was terrified of the creek so we put up plywood along the bridge so it looked hideous when people would come over they'd be like oh that doesn't you know and i'd be like there's my bridge they're like oh that's great it's beautiful (laughs) yeah nice job it looks like it's about to fall apart no but so we would block that but slowly but surely i would move the plywood back then i Uh finally started to removing um you know to remove it and one day i thought you know what i'm done with it and i took off the plywood and he slowly started crossing so so yes now yeah so you have to check it out it's really yeah yeah, it's really inquisitive okay so i'm i'm good to know that the only thing that your friend's been able to do is to make him run across yeah. the... Okay. And I've been actually trying to walk him, too. Really? Yes. Like, you... on a leash? No. Oh. What? How, how are you doing it? I'm, like, literally will walk him around our property. I've only done it two or three times. That is so cool. Well, I'm just terrified because he, he could take off. They can oh, go yeah. 40 miles an hour. Yeah, so we like make sure... Fast. Yeah. So, But I've seen other facilities have emu leashes. So... Do you really? Have... Yes. So if, if your friend has any pointers on a leash... Oh, I'll have to ask him. I don't know. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah it is kind of scary. Like I said, it's, I've only done it a few times, and I've been like, okay, maybe we should, uh, yeah, maybe we Very should. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay, All sorry. Right. This, yeah, off track. Emus so, are awesome. Emus are awesome. One of my favorites. Yeah. Okay, so great segue into emus. Yes. You just got back from Tasmania, correct? Right. And Australia or just Tasmania? Just Tasmania this time. But I you've was, been to Australia yeah. before. Yeah. Yeah. Actually twice this last year for the first time ever. What? So my husband is also a raptor biologist. He works for the U.S. Geological Society and studies eagles. And a graduate student at the University of Tasmania got in touch with Todd, my husband, and asked um, if he would be willing to come down to Tasmania. And <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> yeah, and train him to put uh, to telemetry units on eagles, uh, wedge-tailed eagles, which is the study subject for this PhD project that he's doing. And so Todd was like, uh, do you have money to get me there? And <laughs> this guy found money for, for Todd's travel. So for you too? No, not for me. So we just used frequent flyer miles to get me there. <laughs> <laughs> so we went last January and then we just got back, uh, from a three week trip in December and we spent three weeks, uh, hiking through really, really difficult jungle in Tasmania, um, to put telemetry units on Eagle's. And uh, now there, so there are seven eagles flying around Tasmania that have telemetry units from last year, from last January. And then from this December, while we were there, we put 10 units on uh, birds and they still had another eight to deploy. So there's going to be a lot of eagles flying around uh, that we're able to track. And it's really exciting because nobody really knew anything about the behavior of wedge-tailed eagles in Tasmania prior to this project. So we're able to gain all sorts of information, which is valuable because this is an endangered species. And so the first step to conservation is understanding the natural history of a species. You can't save a species unless you can understand what's affecting it. 
And so that's that's what this student is doing, and it's pretty cool. That's awesome. And, yeah. and can I share, can you send me a few of your photos? Because Absolutely. I'm that creepy Facebook friend. I like all your photos. I was oh, like, 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 because you get to do, yeah, just yeah. Tasmania. And I just saw you with the eagles and yeah. attaching the units. And It was really neat. It was a neat experience. And, and my job on the team, we had we had a guy whose job was to climb the tree to get to the nest where the where the eagle was. Um, we had uh, the uh, state biologist the, that is um, uh, in the government of Tasmania, and he was kind of overseeing the entire project. The student was there who was putting the telemetry unit on. Todd, my husband, was teaching him how to put telemetry units on, and I was the person responsible for holding the birds, Okay, which is, like, the best job. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, and so every nest we'd get to, I would hold the birds while they put the telemetry unit on the bird. And um, and so I got to get really close to all of these birds, and it was really kind of my dream vacation. So, Gosh, and I yeah. love that. Stayed for a few weeks and yeah. Christmas. It and was so cool. I definitely want to go to Tasmania. Did you see? Okay, off topic, but this is how my whole podcast has been going, <laughs> I right? Like that. Yeah, pet star, right? Penguin yeah. on plane. Okay, I'm sorry, but uh, did you see a Tasmanian devil? We did not actually. We've been there twice. We tried really hard the first time to see one, and we didn't get lucky. Okay. Um, so we didn't see any devils. We tried really hard this time to see a platypus. Didn't see a platypus. Oh, I would have. I know we had bad bad luck but we did see some other really cool animals we saw an entire mob of gray kangaroos going across the field it felt like something out of Jurassic Park it was so cool okay and then we saw we went to Bruni Island and uh, stayed up really late and saw the fairy blue blue penguins come in off the ocean and go into their burrows, so, so that was neat. I sound. I mean, I just learned about these penguins last year, and yeah. I thought it was a joke. So I have I have friends um, from the Adventure Aquarium in Camden, New Jersey, yeah. and they were talking about this new exhibit with fairy blue penguins. And I'm like looking at Samantha, thinking, "What? The, what are right. they doing? No idea that they this because you don't yeah. the species you don't really I mean hear too much about them. You usually right. only see the emperors, the kings. So little blue fairy penguins. They're adorable. How tiny are? How big are they? Uh, they're maybe they stand maybe a foot. Like high. the size of your tall Starbucks yeah, looking cup. 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 Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's so. Cool. Isn't that cool? Yeah, and yeah. so um, so that was really neat to see them, and we've seen echidnas every time we've gone on a trip, which was great. Wait, wait, just out in the wild? Yeah, wild well, echidnas. Really? Yep. Just you're walking around and you see an echidna, mm-hmm. like or driving around. You you're driving it. around and you just yeah. see one in a like on the side of the road, munching on some insects. Those monotremes, I mean, egg laying mammals. That just they're amazing. I, I'm just that's still... the thing about Tasmania is it's like such a different world. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine like what it was like for the first people who got to that country and are like, what is going on here with the kangaroos and the wallabies and the all the things hopping around? It's just and, it's really strange. Yeah, and the Tasmanian tiger. Yeah, yeah. Okay, are are you a believer? Because you know that there's. Well, I'm oh, not, do it. I'm you not. can say it. you're not. I'm not a believer. You're not a believer. No. Can you tell us a little bit? Because the Tasmanian tiger, it's been extinct since what the 30s or 20s or 30s. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Yeah, okay. and people are always claiming that they've seen them, and you know it's impossible to prove a negative, right? Uh-huh. So you can't for sure say there are no more Tasmanian tigers because there mm. could always be that one hiding out there somewhere, but. Um, I've worked with a lot of biologists from Tasmania now, and they spend a lot of time out in the wild, and the fact that they've never stumbled across any signs of Tasmanian tigers makes me kind of feel like it's probably a hopeless cause. Oh, man, 
I'm just hoping yeah. to just hoping, but yeah, I mean, more than likely they probably don't They're exist. Probably not here anymore. Same like with the Bigfoot, but that well, I don't know. You get get people who are I know. I don't want to get the Bigfoot people against me because I right. well, and I think that's kind of like the cool thing about cryptozoology. Oh, and like, cryptozoology! And yes. Like, I mean, it's kind of fun to think what yes. what if what if. What if? Have you ever thought that that like I've thought about the Bigfoot stuff like yeah. and, and then you then you like hear people who are super into it and they're like I've you know and I've seen them. My yeah. dad's friend swore that he saw them. Really? Yes, but then I found out. <laughs> maybe we'll take this out. He was on psychedelics. So. <laughs> Well, so anyway, you can see I, lots of cool you things. You can see a lot of cool things. So anyway, but that was in your yeah. arrow rock. So I'm assuming that was probably a false case. But right. I've heard people like like they have an intense smell, right? Yeah, that, that's okay. what they say. And, and I, I mean, you never know. People people are discovering new species all the time. I mean, that's why it's so critical for us to save these wild places, mm-hmm. these places that nobody can get to, because there are species out there. The Peregrine Funds biologists actually. In Madagascar, rediscovered a couple species that we thought were extinct. The Madagascar red owl. Really? And the Madagascar poacher. And so now there's conservation projects protecting both of them. And then uh, they've discovered a couple new species of lemurs that nobody knew existed. Little tiny lemurs that fit in like your baseball hat. Really? Super cute. But yeah, nobody knew. No one even knew. Yeah. There's so much to still be discovered there in this really day is, and age. Which I think is so exciting. I mean, we live in a world that is so well-traveled, and yet, yet there's still stuff we don't know. And the rainforest, the ocean. The, deep, the depths of the ocean, Dear yeah. Lord, can you see what that... Oh. Oh, I just... That's incredible. Right. That's incredible. Well, Aaron, you this has been so much fun. Uh, yeah. You've been such a fantastic guest. and you, you. I hope that for those of you listening, this was inspirational for people wanting to pursue any animal-related career. Just... Uh, you just your story's great work hard and persevere and yeah and it's worth it it's worth it like you love what you do i love what i do and i feel like i get to make a difference and that's you know you don't make a ton of money in this industry but mm-hmm. it doesn't matter it's yeah. you know i i love the job yeah so. absolutely yeah. absolutely and is there one last thing is there one bird that you would like to see out in the wild is there like a bucket list destination or bird Oh, gosh. Always. I mean, always. Mm-hmm. I would love to see a harpy eagle in the wild. I would love to see one of those guys. I'd love to see a stellar sea eagle in the wild. Oh, my gosh. That, be cool? that would be insane. Amazing. That would be insane. Yeah. So that would be incredible. Philippine eagle. I guess Philippine. I want to see the three big eagles in the wild. Okay. <laughs> that would be really neat. That would be incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And for more information and, you know, for, you know, of course, if you're in Boise listening, uh, visit the World Center for Birds of Prey. Aaron, you do a, you do a flight demonstration too? We do in October every year in the fall. Uh, We extended it actually to the middle of September. So during the cooler months where it's comfortable to sit outside in, Mm -hmm. in Boise, um, we, we fly birds right over top of your head okay. and it's amazing. Like some of them even will brush you with their wingtips as they go by wow. and you want to talk about a close encounter of the bird kind, uh, come visit us for our fall flights yeah. and flight demonstrations and you won't be disappointed yep. for sure. One of the only places in the world to see a condor Absolutely. just and get the, and just like when we were filming this webisode, I had no idea that you you took a group of people inside of a inside of a room, and you, you did a free flight demonstration with a kestrel, and it was just yeah. flying and just to different points, and it exhibited these fantastic behaviors that I've never yeah. seen. And 
it's a really, really neat just experience, I think, for guests. It's a lot different than, uh, you know, I think going to your, you know, zoo, which, you know, nothing against the zoo, but I think this is a different experience. It's very interactive. I really like that. It is different. Uh, we, we're not a huge facility. You're not going to come and see hundreds of animals like you might at a zoo, but mm-hmm. Uh, you will have nose-to-beak experiences. Nose-to-beak. I like that. What yeah. a great way. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, I appreciate you're it. Thanks for inviting me. This has been fun. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so happy. And thanks for taking your whole afternoon hanging out with us. Absolutely. So, okay. And then really quick, after, I mean, just judging me, grading me, would you hire me? Oh, absolutely. You think so? A plus. I don't think. I mean, you're, <laughs> you're, why are you laughing? <laughs> are you laughing because of, of the rat? You were kind of freaking out when you were cutting open the rat, but I have faith that you yes. could get used to it and, and deal with it because I saw how excited you got about holding Wally Whoa, the eagle yeah. owl. Yeah. And so yeah. I think, you know, you would suck it up and cut the rat open just so you could hold Wally. It was just the smell of the rat. It wasn't that I was yeah. well, I, I, gross. I mean, because I deal with frozen rats, but the smell of opening one it's was bad. just, it's bad. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's it's the least favorite thing that I do on a regular basis. Just the rats, though. Just the rats. Not the Everything mice. Else, the mice, the quail, the chicken, that, that doesn't bother me. But Okay. Yeah. But rats are gross. Yeah. Well, thank you for letting me do that. I appreciate it. <laughs> Check out the webisode to see that lovely footage. Make sure to watch it right before you eat lunch. Or if you're on a diet, trying to watch your weight, watch that uh, webisode of me cutting open a rat. So anyway, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. Please make sure to hit subscribe and leave a rating. It really helps me out. I also encourage you to check out CorbinMaxi.com. You can contact me there personally, even suggest a podcast guest, or if you just want to learn more about animals.